again as I read Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Hear now the very word of God. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. May it be, Father, that as we come to your word now and we meditate upon it, And we, too, have the proclaiming of your word and the hearing of the word. May our our faith be increased. And may we be astonished that we have the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Guard us, Father. There are lies about us. There are lies in our mind and hearts. There may even be spiritual forces at work even now to deceive us away from your truth. We ask that you would guard us, especially in believing those things. And Father, I ask your mercy that you would guard me from speaking those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to start out right offhand with a little bit of quiz time, just so that we can get on the right track very quickly. Last week, um, I asked a question, and I hope you can remember the answer, that if you could summarize Acts into one particular word, one particular main message, um, that would be the summary of what Acts is primarily about. And I know that's a a stretch, and and it's debatable what this word is. I'm not saying this is authoritatively of God's word, that, you know, I've got this down, this is the right one, but I at least answer what I concluded (laughs) and encourage you all to believe. What would be that one word that would be in summary of what the book of Acts is about? Promise. 
That's right. You both said it at the same time. It's okay. You can have glory for that too, Chuck. That's good. You don't have to feel bad about that. Promise. But what is the, the promise of? God. God, right. Good homeschool answer. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. It is about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what about the Holy Spirit? Now, there were some other words that were given there that I said were good secondary words that would be reinforcing that truth. But it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. What? The power. Does somebody say power? Very good. Yes, the power of the Holy Spirit. Our participation in receiving and acting out in the Holy Spirit and the building of the church and these wonderful things, the life that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit has been around forever. And in our men's study, we've been talking a lot, and I've been highlighting wherever we can see very clearly that the Holy Spirit is at work. But we have here in Acts a special measure, a special dispensation, if you would, of God's pouring out of His Holy Spirit that we see the Old Testament talking about, and we see Jesus talking about, and we see that it is what is going to solidify the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ life and death and resurrection to take over the world, to take dominion over all things that he has. And that is what the Holy Spirit is empowering. And so this particular book is highlighting and focusing on the very promise of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, not that it's removed from the work of Jesus Christ, it is emphasizing and bringing to light and to life, the very work and reign of Jesus Christ. It is about the Holy Spirit. And so it's important for us to always keep that in mind because it's important for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is and what are the characters of the Holy Spirit so that we can recognize today where He is alive and operating in bringing forth that dominion throughout the world. I believe that is one of the things that is very challenging for the evangelical church today is to recognize faithfully the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've been given his word to describe that. We've been given stories and we've been seeing, we see here extraordinary manifestations of the Holy Spirit's work. I believe one to assure us and to display and proclaim the might and the power of God, but to assure us in that might and power, but also to help us to recognize the Holy Spirit. But as we already see in this particular narrative, we can see that there is deception in that very thing. I remember years ago, well, not years ago, but about four or so years ago, when we started this congregation, we had a, a friend that would come, and he mentioned that he wanted... To have, one, he said he felt like he saw the fruit of the Spirit in the congregation based upon their love and their actions, but that he had hoped to be able to receive more gifts of that, that eventually that he could be able to do exorcisms. And he was really focused on that in this very extraordinary way. And that he really wanted to be taught that more than anything else. And so he wanted to find another congregation. And I 
trying to encourage him to consider what do we see in the scriptures that are primarily the teachings of what we as the church are to manifest, manifest as the fruit of the Spirit, or to recognize as the fruit of the Spirit, and to focus on that. To focus on that, and if the Lord grants certain extraordinary circumstances today, then he may do so, but there are some things that are very clear. And I believe this passage helps bring together some ordinary things that we see that the Holy Spirit is doing and extraordinary things that are specific to this apostolic time, but also are still consistent with the nature of the Holy Spirit. So there's three things I want you to be thinking about as we go into this short passage today of where we see the Holy Spirit. One, we see the Holy Spirit in church missions. And I want you to make sure when you say that in your mind, or even as you're writing it down, that you kind of slow down at church missions. That the Holy Spirit is clearly evident in this particular narrative at work in the interactivity and the calling and the action of the church bringing forth missions. This is the introduction of Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey. And so we're right on the cusp of it in this beginning. But it is, as we see, a work and an action of the church. Secondly, I want you to be looking for places where we see the work of the Holy Spirit in reason, in how people think. And if you read other passages, you can go all the way through the Old Testament and the New, and you can see that reason and wisdom belong to the Lord. I really appreciated Jonathan's prayer this morning for wisdom, thanking him for wisdom, that we would even have an understanding of anything of God is an amazing thing for us to praise the Lord about, but then to continue to ask for wisdom, that that truth and that wisdom of the Lord would be evident in our every action that we have. There is no wisdom outside of the Lord. And so when we think about wisdom, when we think about even right intelligence, when we think about logic, when we think about anything that's reasonable, that it, it can't be separated from the Lord. Now, I know that could be like, well, I know a lot of people who are logical. I know a lot of people who are intelligent. I know some people who have wisdom, but they're not of the Lord. Even though they may manifest those things, it doesn't mean that they have something that's outside of the Lord. I mean, if you just want to think about it generally, they wouldn't even have creation and life without the Lord. So it, those things are of God, whether they are those who have faith and belief in faithfulness, that is a different thing. And then lastly, I want you to look for the Holy Spirit in merciful judgment. And we don't usually put those two words beside each other. But I believe that they never are to be separated in the actions of the Holy Spirit and the Lord, that all of his judgments are merciful. And we've already seen that in the call to worship this morning, that we rely on the reality that we have a just God, a God who puts forth judgment. And when there is not the display of judgment, there is confusion. So be looking for those things as we go back through this narrative piece by piece. And first of all, I just want to point out that if you, I don't know if you have the same English translation in 
the verse 4 there, the, that if anyone ever argues with you that it is wrong to begin a sentence with so, it's right here. <laughs> so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's think about what this word so means. And I think it's important for us to take a moment and and look at this. The Greek word here that is being translated in English in the ESV as so, um, it may even be better said as indeed. It's an emphasis word. And when we think about how we have butchered up language and communication, that's one reason why people say it's bad to start a sentence with so is like so, you know, or you know, I do that was that was so good. That was you know, we we've kind of have played with that word in a way that people are kind of irritated when they hear people overuse it four or five times in one sentence. But the point here is to show a tremendous emphasis in light of what just occurred. It is indeed. It is to to highlight that indeed they sent out by the Holy Spirit, they sent out Barnabas and Paul to these locations. It's to, it's to, to continue on this, this encouragement for us to see the action of the Holy Spirit being manifested in the work of the church. And I also want to pause there just to kind of connect it with where we were coming from. In the last portion of passage there, we see that there in Antioch, and if you remember from a few past sermons ago, Antioch became a center hub of the mission work of the church. We see that in verses 1 through 3 that the Lord had gifted the church with these prophets and teachers, and it became a hub from how they would send out missions all over the known world. Even today, I believe the Wise family, I think the, the missions work that they're involved in, it has the word Antioch in it, or it's a part of the organization. I can't remember what the whole name of it is, but the, it's, a, it's thematically an understanding of a hub of sending out missions to the world. And if you remember, Paul and Barnabas, excuse me, um, well, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, I go back and forth, and we even see it mentioned here that Saul was known as Paul, and not, it wasn't a, a revision of his name or a changeover of his name, had just gotten back from Jerusalem. So a quiz, what were they doing in Jerusalem? I'm sure they proclaimed the gospel, but what was some of the means and the tools of how they were proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem? Trying to get us back in track of where we were in the narrative. What? Praying. I'm sure they were praying. <laughs> Weren't they supplying food for the That's right. The church in Antioch had gathered a collection and to send it to Jerusalem. Why did they send a collection to Jerusalem specifically? They were given a prophecy that there would be a famine in the land. And so they were preparing ahead of time. They were organizing ahead of time a gift that would help support them. And it was my wife who pointed this out, that I did not emphasize this in the last sermon. If you remember in the last sermon, in the contrast of what was going on, you had Tyre and Sidon going to Agrippa, the Herod, Agrippa, for what? For food. And so they were reaching out to a godless governor, asking for help, because they depended upon the food. 
And that came to be uh, maybe a lost cause because what happened to Agrippa? He died. <laughs> By what? <laughs> By an angel. Struck him down. And pretty much that ended that. And I did not emphasize the parallel contrast that as those who were reaching out for godless means of hope, holding on to a hope that was outside of God's promises, that God was ahead of the game by organizing his church and taking care of his people in Jerusalem with food that was necessary. I hope that this particular sermon and reminder of the work of the Holy Spirit this day and every element of those things that we're going to be talking about will be an encouragement to you. I had a conversation with my mother on Thursday. Knox and I had a chance to have lunch with her. And she's a very politically minded person. She's a bit of a recluse. So she watches a lot of the news. And I hope that we can get her moved here. And I ask that you would be praying for her, that she would come here and that the Lord would draw her to himself. But during that conversation... I was agreeing with her with just some of the things that were going on in our nation and throughout the world. And it was getting to be a very dark and grim conversation after a very wonderful Korean meal that we had. And I thought, you know, we've got to change this up. This is going bad. And I told her, I said, you know, if you look at every one of those scenarios that we've just talked about, that is the narrative that we're hearing. And that is what kind of grabs our attention And not that we should ignore those circumstances, but if you look, and if you look in the right places, there is a greater narrative being told. You will likely find it, and I can pretty much guarantee it, and and we could have some time, maybe even during lunch, if you like, we could try to see if we could even prove it, that there is another narrative being told of God at work in every one of those negative circumstances. I mean, I know that story because the Bible says that. (laughs) But we have those reminders, and that's one of the reasons why I want to encourage our church to be using that prayer guide, because it tells us about those particular things. We heard a lot on the news about Afghanistan a few months ago, and about just the disaster that was, and the terror that was. But did you hear the stories of the multiplication of his church in Afghanistan during that time? It was astronomical. During that time, Afghanistan either matched or came a close second to Iran being the fastest growing church in the world. That's amazing. And it wasn't by accident or happenstance that it happened through that particular terror and difficulty. So it's important for us to to see how in this narrative that What God is doing through what might seem to be grim and maybe even actions of justice, that there is a tremendous story of mercy. This is a characteristic of how God's church has furthered from the very beginning and still is that way today. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. These are just a few sentences, but if we combine it with where we were earlier in the chapter, we first have to remember that they were brought together and organized by the calling of the Holy Spirit, being equipped or being acknowledged through the men in Antioch laying on hands on Barnabas and Paul 
to do this mission work. And there's this interwovenness that we see that when we see the work of the church occurring, and if it's occurring in the consistency of God's word, that is a strong and assuring sign that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Every time we look through here, we can't go very far without it saying, the Holy Spirit is doing this, the church is acting in this, and God's word is right there. They're all tied together. And we're even told in the scriptures and the epistles to test the spirits by the word of God. So here we see the formula for that, that we can see the spirit acting in the church and it matches what we see in the word of God. We see the proclamation of his word. And if you see those things absent, if you see the word of God absent, that's the only thing that we have tangibly before us is the word of God in his church. If one of those things are removed, there's some at least to be some calls to caution. Not to say that he doesn't work extraordinarily outside of his church. And that he doesn't work extraordinarily without the word being proclaimed. But we should be cautious. And we should look for the evidence of the word of God being interwoven with that activity. So here we see this going on. And we also see the fulfillment of what God had been promising in the very beginning. That it would first go to the Jews. So if you could, I don't know how many people have looked at the map. You have, if you can imagine, I'm just going to, I'm hoping that you have some back knowledge of what, where Jerusalem is and, and where the Holy Land is. But if you have Jerusalem here, you would have had Antioch up north. And then you have the Mediterranean Sea over here. You with me so far? <laughs> and so Antioch was here, and then as it says, it went, they went to, um, I don't know he's getting the two mixed up, Seleucia. It's just basically, they have often historically even been known as the same thing, that the Antioch region even encompassed Seleucia, because Seleucia was basically a port. That's just right outside of Antioch. And so they walked down to Antioch, and they got on a boat, and they went over to Cyprus. You probably have seen Cyprus on a map somewhere. And it's just, you can actually, on a very clear day, can almost, you can see Cyprus from the coast of Seleucia. And so they get there, and the first place that they hit on the east is a town that has synagogues. And so there were already... There were Jews there that had ran during the dispersion, and they were settled there. And it says that Barnabas and Paul went there first, and they proclaimed God's word. And then it doesn't really give us a whole lot more other than that. We don't see what the, the, the response was. We just know that they went there first. And it flows with the consistency of how God was bringing about the proclamation of his word, that it was going to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And we see here also, we see that we have John Mark assisting them. It doesn't say John Mark, but if you back up a little bit, just a few verses earlier, we would see John mentioned multiple times as John, also known as John Mark. And so we can see that this is John Mark. And John is his Jewish name, and Mark would have been his Greek name, and that's why they call him John Mark. I want to highlight that a bit now, and we won't really talk anything much more about it today, but as we get closer to seeing later on in transitioning to the second missionary journey with Paul, we discover that there is some kind of conflict. And I want to highlight it now just a little bit just so that you can see that these things are being recorded and noted for us by Luke so that we can see that as the Holy Spirit is working in his church, he is working, working with non-perfect people. He's working with sinful people. 
He's working with people who have conflicts and disagreements. We don't really know for certain the disagreement that Paul had with John Mark, but we do know that that was restored. Later on, we see that in Colossians, and that he was encouraged to have John Mark with him. But that alone, that, 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 that conflict is present, and a reminder of that as we go into this, since we do have the fullness of his word, we know that there was that conflict it's still important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit was still at work, even as there were people here that didn't do things perfectly. And that should be an obvious thing for us when we consider that how God does things. If he's going to work with human beings to get it done, it's going to be imperfectly done. And so we cannot rule out that whenever people make mistakes, or if there's ever conflict, that that should be at a time to abandon a particular work that a group of people are having. Now, I'm not saying that we should never turn away or that we should never leave a church or we should never stop supporting certain ministries or that we shouldn't speak out against certain ministries that go against God's word. But we, I believe, have been told by Satan and we have created a a nature of fault that... If you have people who are possibly hypocrites or imperfect, who make bad decisions or who have conflicts of sin, that that's a good enough reason just to abandon any hope that that is of the Holy Spirit. And we see here that in the foundation of the church in the first mission work, that these men were working together, that John Mark was with Barnabas and Paul at this time. He was assisting them. Church tradition even determines or thinks that this is the very one who wrote the book of Mark. It's a debatable thing, but it's it's one of the things that the church tradition considers. When they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This is also packed for, with a lot of things for us to consider that as they came to Paphos, they, come across, they came across a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was a magician. And I think we have a contrast here. Even though the magician was with the proconsul, the word magician, the root of that is wisdom, that magicians had a special knowledge. They had a special understanding. The word is to even highlight that they had wisdom. It's the equivalent of the root there is they were wise. And then you have this proconsul who is the governor of all of Cyprus. He is a Roman governor. And it says that he was a man of intelligence, So these were two people who had a reputation of being smart dudes, all right? Or at least being respected for what they knew. And it's possible that this magician may even be able to to assume that certain things of the future. And so they were looking to see those things come to pass, that people may have come to him to have their fortunes told. And so we see these two people who are before the proclamation of the gospel, both of them with the reputation of being men 
of some level, of some type of reason and knowledge and wisdom. And it's important for us to see those things highlighted here because there's going to be a challenge to that. There's going to be a reinforcement in one way and then a challenge about whether or not one person has this. And if you want to go back and think about how this has always been the challenge about truth, that in the garden with Eve, Satan uses this tactic. What was it that Eve concluded from her conversation that disobeying God would bring her? It would make her wise. She saw that how Satan laid out the argument about whether or not God would do this or do that and whether he said this or that, that if she would go forward with that, that she would obtain some kind of wisdom. It's been the very initial fight for mankind is to understand, to grasp something. This is why I want us to think about that the Holy Spirit is interwoven with true reason, with true wisdom, with true logic and understanding. And that is the thing that we just read earlier that we celebrate, that Paul encourages us to celebrate, that it is the knowledge of Jesus Christ that is more valuable than anything else. And so here in their first missionary work, it's going to be that there, there's going to be a conflict of what is true reason, what is true knowledge, what is true understanding. And there are these two men, one a magician, one a man of intelligence. The one who is the proconsul, he summons Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God proclaimed. But Elimas, the magician, same guy, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, Luke's taking a lot of time to, to play with these names. And I think it's important for us to see that, that as he is explaining all the details of these names, he's wanting us to get in depth a little bit to think about what these names mean and how they play into the narrative. This is what Saul, who was called Paul, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, Elamas, and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop, stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? His name was Elamas because he was a magician, but what else was his name? Bar Jesus. Bar Jesus. What does Bar Jesus mean? What's that? Son of Jesus. Jesus. Now, Jesus was a much more common name than it is here in in our part of the country today. Maybe more common in certain parts of um, Mexico or Spain. But it's not as much of a a, a common name for us today. But I think there's a play here. That his name, his dad's name was probably Jesus. But I'm sure that as the name Jesus is proclaimed, I'm sure Barnabas and Paul probably always perked up, just like we perk up when we hear the name Jesus. We don't 
get into a conversation. At least I hope that if you've been a Christian for a little while, that you're not in a conversation. And if, you know, if somebody introduced themselves and said, yeah, I'm Jesus or I'm Jesus, that you're just going, oh, okay. You ought to go, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm fairly sure that Paul was probably in the same kind of boat here and thinking that as he got to know who this Elamos was, as he was here trying to proclaim the gospel to this proconsul, and the, this magician is trying to thwart things and saying things. I kind of think of the scene in The Lord of the Rings with the, what's the tongue guy name? Um, worm tongue. Worm tongue, what a great name, worm tongue. You know, standing there saying things to him as the gospel is being proclaimed. And he says, you son of the devil. You're <laughs> not a son of Jesus. And even more than that, what was his background? He is Jewish. Now, we don't know much about him other than what's in this small little paragraph, whether he had any kind of acknowledgement of his Jewish background. If he, he said he was a Jewish false prophet, so it seems like there was some kind of association with his Jewish background. But these words were used before by Jesus and by John the Baptist against the Jews. Because it was fighting words for them. Because they believed that they were sons of Abraham. From They were sons of God. And when Jesus would correct them, and John the Baptist would correct them, he would say, no, you are a son of the devil. So Paul's doing the same thing here, maybe even playing around with words a little bit, that you're no son of Jesus. You're no son of God. You're the son of the devil. You're taking what I am teaching and you're trying to twist it and make crooked. You're an enemy of all righteousness. Your proclamation of what you say is wisdom and true is an enemy of all righteousness. The twisting of reason is the enemy of all righteousness. It is rooted in the devil himself from the very beginning of this battle of sin. You're playing out that. You're full of all deceit and villainy. Villainy means putting to work, planning, being active. It's, it's not just having it in your heart. You are making a strategy to bring about wickedness. Paul is saying, you're one bad dude. You're taking the straight paths and you're trying to make them crooked. And this is where confusion sets in. And so we see here that he said this to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we go throughout the word, and you think about the word, if, if, if Paul was preaching the word of God, if Paul and Barnabas were, were, was preaching from a text, they were using the Old Testament. And we have plenty of accounts where we see there in Proverbs, particularly, that the wisdom belongs to the Lord, that we're called to cherish it like a sister, to hold it closely because this is a gift of God. We see in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar that because of his wickedness, when he is judged and he has been made in, like an animal, that when he comes back, it says his, he proclaims that his reason came back. That in that moment of judgment, he lost his mind. But when his reason came back, what did Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar do? He gave glory to the Lord. 
that that reason matched the praise and the acknowledgement of the might of the true God. So this is the battle that we have. And that without the Holy Spirit's work, that any wisdom that we think we might have, which is usually something that was straight or maybe even partial truths that have been twisted, which is, which is Satan's greatest art, is twisting God's word. It's the very thing that he did when he was tempting Jesus Christ. That, yeah, it might look like wisdom. It might smell like wisdom. It might taste like wisdom and reason. But it is the fruit of the very enemy of all righteousness. And why that's important for us is because we are information people. We are constantly being inundated by a lot of things and we are being told that we need to learn this, we need to know this, we need to think this way or that way. It is impossible for God's people to survive in this battle if we are one, we are not equipped with the word of God. It is impossible for us to be able to be sustained unless we at least have some element of that truth before us. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't have the full completed Bible because there are plenty of stories of throughout history where the church, certain portions of the church didn't have all of that. But what they did have, they did cherish often. They ate it up. They dwelled upon it. It is impossible for Christians not to be eating from the Word of God. From the very beginning, we see that. And it's impossible for there to be any kind of reasonability about our actions unless it is enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about reason, when we think about how to think, we need to thank God that he has given us knowledge of him. But we need to be prepared and equipping ourselves in this particular battle because here in this moment, this proconsul who was receiving the word of God was in the middle of a conflict, in the middle of a battle. And extraordinarily, Paul had the ability to speak to this particular individual with such declarative statement and with declarative action that he would be blinded. Again, if we go back into the scriptures throughout the Old Testament and into the New and into the very narrative of Saul himself, that that blindness is a judgment, but it is also a lesson. It is a manifestation of what is really going on in the teaching of Elymas. It is blind. It is in darkness. It is error. It is not based upon true reason. And so we see God putting forth a judgment, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar, that it was just manifested in such a way that Nebuchadnezzar's actions, where he had this, you know, this pomp, in the circumstance, in this position of king, that he was made into an animal, that how he was ultimately acting was more consistent with unreasonable madness. And so it was bringing to light the reality of what is going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and in his mind as a display for him and for everyone to see. 
And for him, it was a mercy. It helped bring him to his senses. It says in Psalm 119, verse 34 through 40, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. One of the things that we're taught today when we think about law, even when we think about knowing things, and I've heard this in every Christian church experience that I've ever been in, well, I'd rather be of the Spirit. I'd rather this action occur and be Spirit-led and not so much based upon knowledge and based upon law. Well, would we ever be able to argue that the psalmist is not one who is equipped with the Spirit and being moved by the Spirit to ask God to give him understanding that he may keep your law with his whole heart. That it is impossible for those things to be separated. That the Spirit doesn't work in some chaotic, senseless, unreasonable Way. Now, it doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't work in a way that we might not comprehend, but it's always going to be matched with truth and understanding that is according to, verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your judgments are good. Now, if you have ESV, you would have read there that your rules are good. In just about the bulk of most English translations, it says judgments. It is about rules and ruling, but it is about judgment. Just Rules, just actions are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness give me life. That without the judgments, without that righteousness, without this kind of bringing to our senses based upon the consistency of God's law, there's no way to measure whether our actions are based upon the spirit or based upon complete chaos and foolishness. That is the, one of the biggest tools that Satan is wanting to twist and make the church today believe that even now, when I think about Psalm 119, I am amazed at the psalmist's love for the law. It is not in our common tongue and thought for us to delight in the riches of the law of God. It's, I, I, my mind has still not been conformed to that kind of thinking. Because I believe that Satan has done such a great work to our weak hearts that we want to separate that from spirit-led truth. Now, granted, Satan's on the other side of this very quickly, too. He loves, and we saw this in the Canons of Dort today, he loves to take knowledge, and he loves to take truth, and he loves for it to be an opportunity for pride in causing people to feel brazen, to be lording over people because of their knowledge. He's ready for us in either direction we go. And because of the reaction of that, we often find ourselves in a resentment-type culture where it's like, you know what, let's just get rid of truth. Let's just wait for the Spirit to move us. 
That is why we have to be rooted both in spirit and both in word. This is the movement of the gospel mission of the world, is that both of these things are at work and they are both interwoven. And Satan will make us believe that one is opposing the other. Just as Satan makes us believe today that the work of the church is a work of man and that the spirit is just doing this other kind of stuff over here, We all heard the phrase, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, James, the book of James teaches us that it is a religion based upon relationships. Relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And as we read in our confession today, we can't say that we are with God and at alt with our brother. It has to do with our relationships with one another. We can't have a non-merciful heart toward the widow and the orphan and say that we are with God. We can't be about social justice for the widow and the orphan without seeking to be undefiled, seeking to not be opposers of the law of God. The word of God confirms for us that these things are together. Satan will take that, he'll cut He'll separate, and he's ready for us on either direction. That so much today, it is much more common on social media for people to say, the church hurt me, therefore I can't go back there. Than it is to say, it is a place of rescue and refuge. Now granted, some of these stories are reality. Because some people in the church have taken their position and their power and their knowledge and have abused it. But it is not the church that is in error. It is people who are not following God's word and being emboldened by the Spirit. We have to be careful not to fall off of either side of this horse into the crap that lies below because there's nothing but death there. The Holy Spirit is both the one who is giving life to the church and it is the one who is truly consistent with reason and logic and law. And then lastly, we see that it is the Holy Spirit that brought forth this judgment. In Isaiah 42, verse 18 through 25, as a judgment to Israel and their disobedience, it is proclaimed and prophesied what would happen to Israel and their sin. It says, Hear you deaf, deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, and blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen to the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? against whom we have sinned, 
in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but it did not take to heart. Here we have this account that Paul is bringing forth this judgment, this proclamation that Elymas is a son of the devil. And he says that you are going to become blind. You're going to be unable to see the sun. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about groping, very much like an image of what was told here in Isaiah. He is a Jew who is rejecting the truth of God, who is rejecting the reason of God, who is not being embodied by the Holy Spirit to understand this truth, that even though he is standing there right next to the proconsul, he's hearing it, but he's not getting it. And that rejection of that reasonable truth of God's gospel has put him in a place where now that blindness is being manifested in the reality through his eyes. Now we don't know what is going on here in the bigger narrative. Paul says, for a time. Now, remember who's saying this. This is Paul. He was blinded. At his encounter with Jesus Christ, he was blinded for a time. It was manifested in him that his being an enemy of the righteousness of Jesus Christ was blindness, was darkness, was deafness. And God manifested that in his eyes for a time and brought him to reality. He did that to Nebuchadnezzar in the measure that he did in the book of Daniel. And here we can be hopeful that maybe he is doing that with Elmas. We don't get that right now. But to encourage us, what happened in this scene? That as Elamos became blind, as that judgment was being poured forth upon the one who was rejecting these ministers of the church, who was rejecting the reasonable knowledge of the gospel, he came to faith when judgment was poured out upon the enemy of God. That was the thing that pushed him over but it was not the only thing that pushed him over. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was both the action of the Holy Spirit through his judgments matched up with God's word that brought this proconsul to Jesus Christ, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is what saved him from his darkness and from his blindness. But even in that same passage in Isaiah earlier on, in chapter 43, verse 1, it says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Chapter 42, verses 6 through 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison of those who sit in darkness. This whole section of Isaiah that I've been reading about has all been focused upon both the judgment and the salvation that comes by the hand of Jesus Christ. We should not cower away from proclaiming the judgments of God. Just this week, in a circumstance very close to my own life and heart, in a very small snapshot, a person who should have received judgment did not receive earthly judgment. It completely created chaos. It created bitterness. And for the victims of this injustice, they went further into a place of hardness. Now, I am hopeful because of the proclamation of God's word that I know that God's justice will come. But we all know circumstances whenever that justice is not truly had and proclaimed and made as a display, it seems to make God into a liar. And if we are being taught by Satan to not use the word judgment, not to proclaim that people are sinners, not to call people to repentance, we are going to be hating them. We are going to be neglecting them. We are going to be encouraging them into hardness and madness. We see the taste of that in snapshots all the time. And when we look at the world stage, we can see so many accounts of injustice. And we can become discouraged. So on one hand, I want to encourage you that God's judgments are good, just like the psalmist sings. We should celebrate that with repentance and humility. If we're not first brought to our knees in confession of sin when we hear the proclamation or see his judgments proclaimed like Saragus does here, then we don't have anything to celebrate other than our own demise. But Jesus Christ, as he is proclaiming his judgments, he's saying, but another conjunction here of great hope. Indeed, I will save my people. He doesn't ignore the judgments. He doesn't say, you know what? We don't need to proclaim those prophecies. I'm just going to encourage them. I love you. It's all going to be okay. No, he proclaims as the very first words that comes out of his mouth. Repent. Believe. Trust. Use. Understand. Come to the knowledge. Come to me. For I have formed you. It is for my name's sake that I will save you. We're not serving water up here today. We're serving wine. Because it represents the judgment of God that was poured out upon his son. We're not just going to suck on a wafer. We're going to eat a broken piece of bread 
Because we are going to be reminded of the judgment of God that was poured out upon his son for you. This is due to us. Our blood should be spilt. Our bodies should be torn apart and annihilated for eternity. But we are here to celebrate that this has happened to his son. For us. That's how much he loves us. Would you know his love apart from what he has done? Would we recognize the depth? Speaking of Adam and Eve before the fall, did they have a clue to his righteousness and his mercy? I'm hopeful that they do now. But this is a display of his might. When it is removed from the church, when it is absent from the church, when repentance is removed, we cannot proclaim the mercy. We cannot proclaim the gospel. And we have nothing to celebrate. We have nothing to hope in. It's nothing but madness. Come to this table. It is a reasonable thing as we consider the righteousness of God for us to consider our need of confession of sin. And it is a reasonable thing when we see the price paid for our salvation for us to come in celebration. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.